Public Works Steampunk presents Jane Eyre. Written by Charlotte Bronte, with Steampunk Editions by R.A. Harding. Read by Danita Feldman. Chapter 38, in which Jane concludes her story. Reader, I married him. A quiet wedding we had. He and I, the clergy pundit and clerk, were alone present. I wore my only sari, and foregoing any jewels he wished to press upon me, wearing only the pearl necklace that had been saved from the fire, and my little bee brooch. When we got back from temple, I went into the kitchen of the manor house where Mary was cooking the dinner and John cleaning the knives, and I said, Mary, I have been married to Mr. Rochester this morning. The housekeeper and her husband were both of that decent level-headed order of people to whom one may at any time safely communicate a remarkable piece of news without incurring the danger of having one's ears pierced by some shrill shriek and subsequently stunned by a torrent of wordy wonderment. Mary did look up, and she did stare, taking in the sari and smell of incense that clung to me. The ladle with which she was basting a pair of chickens roasting at the fire did for some three minutes hang suspended in air, and for the same space of time John's knives also had rest from the polishing process. But Mary, bending again over the roast, said only, Have you, miss? Well, for sure. A short time after she pursued, I seed you go out with the master, but I didn't know you were gone to temple to be wed, and she basted away. John, when I turned to him, was grinning from ear to ear. I telled Mary how it would be, he said. I knew what Mr. Edward, John was an old servant and had known his master when he was the cadet of the house, therefore he often gave him his Hindu Christian name. I knew what Mr. Edward would do, and I was certain he would not wait long neither, and he's done right for aught I know. I wish you joy, miss. And he politely pulled his forelock. Thank you, John. Mr. Rochester told me to give you and Mary this. I put into his hand a five-pound note. Without waiting to hear more, I left the kitchen. In passing the door of that sanctum some time after, I caught the words, She'll happen do better for him, nor ony odd grand ladies. And again, If she bain't one of the handsomest, she's no unfal and very good-natured. And if he's ain, she's fair beautiful. Onybody may see that. I wrote to Moore House and to Cambridge immediately to say what I had done, fully explaining also why I had thus acted. Diana and Mary approved the step unreservedly. Diana announced that she would just give me time to get over the honeymoon and then she would come and see me. She had better not wait till then, Jane, said Mr. Rochester when I read her letter to him. If she does, she will be too late, for our honeymoon will shine our life long. Its beams will only fade over your grave or mine. How St. John received the news, I don't know. He never answered the letter in which I communicated it. Yet six months after, he wrote to me, without, however, mentioning Mr. Rochester's name or alluding to my marriage. His letter was then calm, and though very serious, kind. He has maintained a regular, though not frequent, correspondence ever since. He hopes I am happy. You have not quite forgotten little Adele, have you, reader? I had not. 
I soon asked and obtained leave of Mr. Rochester to go and see her at the school where he had placed her. Her frantic joy at beholding me again moved me much. She looked pale and thin. She said she was not happy. I found the rules of the establishment were too strict, its course of study too severe for a child of her age. I took her home with me. I meant to become her governess once more, but I soon found this impracticable. My time and cares were now required by another. My husband needed them all. So I sought out a school conducted on a more indulgent system and near enough to permit of my visiting her often and bringing her home sometimes. I settled on the finishing academy for young ladies and took care she should never want for anything that could contribute to her comfort. She soon settled in her new abode, became very happy there and made fair progress in her studies. When she left school, I found in her a pleasing and obliging companion, docile, good-tempered, well-principled, and with many new talents. By her grateful attention to me and mine, she has long since well repaid any little kindness I ever had it in my power to offer her. My tale draws to its close. One word respecting my experience of married life, and one brief glance at the fortunes of those whose names have most frequently recurred in this narrative, and I have done. I have now been married ten years. I know what it is to live entirely for and with what I love best on earth. I hold myself supremely blessed, blessed beyond what language can express, because I am my husband's life as fully as he is mine. No woman was ever nearer to her mate than I am, ever more absolutely bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. I know no weariness of my Edward society, he knows none of mine, any more than we each do of the pulsation of the heart that beats in our separate bosoms. Consequently, we are ever together. To be together is for us to be at once as free as in solitude, as merry as in company. We talk, I believe, all day long. To talk to each other is but a more animated and an audible thinking. All my confidence is bestowed on him. All his confidence is devoted to me. We are precisely suited in character. Perfect concord is the result. Mr. Rochester continued blind the first two years of our union. Perhaps it was that circumstance that drew us so very near, that knit us so very close for I was then his vision, as I am still his right hand. Literally, I was, what he often called me, the apple of his eye. He saw nature, he saw books through me, and never did I weary of gazing for his behalf, and of putting into words the effect of field, tree, town, river, cloud, sunbeam, of the landscape before us, of the weather round us, and impressing by sound on his ear what light could no longer stamp on his eye. Never did I weary of reading to him. Never did I weary of conducting him where he wished to go, of doing for him what he wished to be done. And there was a pleasure in my services, most full, most exquisite, even though sad, because he claimed these services without painful shame or damping humiliation. He loved me so truly that he knew no reluctance in profiting by my attendance. He felt I loved him so fondly 
that to yield that attendance was to indulge my sweetest wishes. One morning, at the end of the two years, as I was writing a letter to his dictation, he came and bent over me and said, Jane, have you a glittering ornament round your neck? I had a gold watch chain. I answered, yes. And have you a pale blue vest on? I had. He informed me then that for some time he had fancied the obscurity clouding one eye was becoming less dense, and that now he was sure of it. He and I went up to London. He had the advice of an eminent oculist, and he eventually recovered the sight of that one eye. When it was healed enough, he had a mechanical eye fitted in the other, so that he and I became mirror images in image as well as soul. His healing is not perfect. Even with the ocular mechanics, he cannot now see without some effort. He cannot read or write much, but he can find his way without being led by the hand. The sky is no longer a blank to him, the earth no longer a void. When his firstborn was put into his arms, he could see that the boy had inherited his own eyes, as they once were, large, brilliant and black. On that occasion, he again, with a full heart, acknowledged that the gods had tempered judgment with mercy. My Edward and I then are happy, and the more so because those we most love are happy likewise. Diana and Mary Rivers are both married. Alternately, once every year, they come to see us, and we go to see them. Diana's husband is a captain in the Navy, a gallant officer and a good man. Mary's is a clergy pundit a college friend of her brother's, and from his attainments and principles worthy of the connection. Both Captain Fitzjames and Mr. Wharton love their wives and are loved by them. As to St. John Rivers, he left England, he went to India. He entered on the path he had marked for himself, he pursues it still. A more resolute, indefatigable pioneer never wrought amidst rocks and dangers. Firm, faithful and devoted, full of energy and zeal and truth, he labours for his race. He clears their painful way to improvement. He hews down like a giant the prejudices of creed and caste that encumber it. St. John is unmarried. He never will marry now. Himself has hitherto sufficed to the toil, and the toil draws near its close. His glorious sun hastens to its setting. The last letter I received from him drew from my eyes human tears, and yet filled my heart with divine joy. He anticipated his sure reward, his incorruptible bliss. I know that a stranger's hand will write to me next to say that the good and faithful servant has been called at length into the joy of his next life of labour. And why weep for this? No fear of death will darken St. John's last hour. His mind will be unclouded, his heart will be undaunted, his hope will be sure, his faith steadfast. His own words are a pledge of this. My masters, he says, have forewarned me, Daily they announce more distinctly, surely I shall come quickly, and hourly I more eagerly respond, Amen, and Om Hari Om, 
Even so come, Lord Krishna and Jesus. The End Acknowledgements This book was made possible by Charlotte Bronte and her father's eye surgery. Jane Eyre has haunted me since childhood, and I hope now it will become a peaceful item on my shelf instead of a creative project desperately poking me. Thank you, Charlotte, for writing such a magnificent, haunting, gothic drama that has endured through the centuries. You understood the heart and souls of people, and your characters endure, even when writers dress them up with clockwork. This was the education of a lifetime to read your work in detail. The writing and editing process was made possible and delightful due to Danita Feldman. She is a true lover of classic works and excellent at making both creative and clever editorial notes in the margins. Her encouragement, weekly calls, and feedback of all 38 chapters was exactly what I needed. Thank you, Danita, for being my nerd-out buddy and partner in crime. The Cups of Tea and Patient Ear was provided by Ken. My darling, you gave me space to write and enough cuddles to keep going. Thank you, and I love you. This final appreciation is to the encouraging ears and hearts that listened to me talk about this project for six years. I know it took ages and a pandemic for me to actually do this. I did it. I promise to only talk about it again if it is wildly successful. At that time, drinks will be on me. Thank you for listening to this chapter of Public Works Steampunk Presents Jane Eyre. This book is copyright 2021 by R.A. Harding. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. The music box intro and outro was recorded by Nicholas Drewski. If you would like to read the author's notes on the chapter or order the book, please go to publicworksteampunk.com. And while you're there, join the mailing list to get a -a one-of-a-kind infographic about the book and more. Farewell for the present.